That was John Field, the Irish pianist, and that's Nocturne 2 in C minor. We are now to episode 6. The British East India Company grew throughout the 18th century. The company won out against competitors, both national and international. June 1757, however, stands out as an important date in terms of East India Company expansion. It was the month and year when the company defeated Mughal leadership in Bengal. The Battle of Plassey, if not immense in terms of casualties, was nevertheless hugely significant. It involved tens of thousands of participants and marked the defeat of the Mughal Empire by a company of Britain, not even the state. The battle saw some 35,000 infantry and 15,000 cavalry, all just under the authority of Syed Mir Jafar, who were ostensibly loyal to Bengal's Nuwab. Nuwabs were hereditary leaders in India within the authority of the Mughal Empire. And when we talk about Syed Mir Jafar, we're talking about just one governor underneath the Nuwab. Regional conflicts between Mir Jafar and others who together opposed the Nuwab made for a secret alliance between dissidents and East India Company leadership. This alliance saw these 50,000 troops that we've mentioned defect on the field of battle. These were loyalists to Mir Jafar, who hoped to see the Nawab be defeated, essentially, and hoped then to make an alliance with the British. They were happy to do this if it led to the elevation of Mir Jafar to the title of Nuab, as opposed to the pre-existing Nuab of Bengal. The dynamics of the battle were relevant in terms of much more than numbers, defection, and the replacement of the Nuab. Not only had the Mughals lost their Nuab of Bengal, who was defeated, but by this defeat, the French were, by their alliance with the previous Nuab, defeated as well. The East India Company not only won a regional and strategic victory then, they upset the entire international balance a balance of competition for preeminence in trade in India. A defeat of both the Nuab and their French allies, moreover, opened up yet another door. The British gained the ability to redirect their attention and supplies, to exert force, in other words, on the Dutch. Competition between trading companies in Bengal was, and yet another sense and, and another scope even, an imperial war by proxy a war between emerging nations, nation-states that were already in place, fought on the periphery by their now well-established trading companies. Success in India would ultimately help to solidify British imperial reach against the Mughal Empire, yes, but it would also open up access to resources that would benefit the metropole in their regional wars and competitions with neighbors. And who better for the English to defeat than the French? Success meant that the British would gain a wider area of influence then, not just in Bengal, but throughout Asia also. And adding to this proxy element was the fact that the armies that clashed at Plassey were by no means simply European. Mir Jafar's defecting army of 50,000 was one matter, 
but so too was the fact that the East India Company, like all trading companies for that matter at this time, depended on local military strength in the shape of sepoys, local infantrymen outfitted, in this case by the East India Company, with British arms and with British training. The British thus hoped to win a war by way of armies that were only partially European. Even without Mir Jafar, the main body of Captain Robert Clive's East India force was made up of sepoys. And indeed, sepoys outnumbered Clive's European troops at the battle by a ratio of about three to one. Prior to the battle, also, the British East India Company had three main outposts on the Indian subcontinent. These were at Fort William, Calcutta, at Bombay Castle, and Madras, where St. George was located, another castle or fort. In the aftermath of Plassey, Clive and the AIC gained a much stronger regional influence. Mir Jafar was to be the new Nuab, yes, but the British gained their own ground in terms of territory around Calcutta. And more than this huge payments in treasure, was by way of rent. And most importantly, really strings of control over other regional appointments. Clive thus not only boosted the EIC, but he fashioned for himself a lucrative position in relation to the British presidency of Bengal. This would establish a sinecure for the company, but also one for himself. Britain had, in a sense, done what Cortes even did centuries earlier in Mexico. They had used regional conflicts to advance their own position. And ultimately, this provided a means to gaining the upper hand politically. The aftermath of Plessy in some ways marked the start of East India Company rule in India. It is thus from the Hindi word for rule, Raj, that we get the title that would later create the British Raj. For now, however, it was the British through the East India Company who had put a halt, really, to French expansion in India. At this time, it looked very much like the French were going to continue through their own trading company to expand in and maybe even monopolize control over India. But this, by this battle, has stopped. And what we see from the late 1750s onward is the extent to which EIC rule would deliver from India to Britain vast returns. Returns which would in no small part reach the metropole again, and in particular the capital, London, which was made yet more outlandishly wealthy. Recall again that the East India Company was at this time, just as its name implies, a company. This was a trade monopoly, and it was interested foremost in returning wealth to its shareholders. And increasingly, as was the case with the Battle of Plessy, we can see how company expansion took on a quasi-formal governmental apparatus. The EIC developed its own military strength, as we've mentioned, by importing soldiers who would train, outfit, and help professionalize sepoys. But it was also maintaining a strong regional governmental structure, which can be understood again in terms of the ability to control and even leverage local power dynamics to put in place a new nuance. One might readily understand that this outgrowth of authority posed issues to the governing classes and people who were back in Britain in the metropole. Parliament, and indeed the monarch, might take some issue 
with the idea of a quasi-independent monopoly-wielding East India Company toppling and elevating leaders at their whim. This was, of course, to the overall benefit of the growing empire, but still, the securing of a leash might be to the benefit of Crown and Parliament. One might also readily pause here a moment to consider the premonitions of the 20th century. Just saying. Bringing the East India Company to heel would be a significant task. And who better to take this on than the single greatest prime minister to step into the cockpit since the likes of Walpole? In this case, that means William Pitt, the younger. Pitt was a young and stunningly successful Tory who would manage events in the wake of America's revolution. But it was not simply Pitt's more than capable hands that made company reform possible. By the 1770s, over a decade after the Battle of Plessy, the East India Company was in need of political intervention. Regional control from the far-off metropole to the periphery proved much more difficult than anticipated. It was, in a sense, the very success of the company that had given regional factors, nawabs and others, too much influence. But more than this was the problem of tea. If you will recall, it was a tea party, the one in December 1773, that had seen an attempt by the British government to impose on America taxes that were intended to bail out the East India Company. And that's because the East India Company was at this time heavily indebted and in need of a bailout. Surplus tea, as we've mentioned before, sat in warehouses throughout East London. America was getting its tea, as it turns out, much cheaper at the time from the Dutch. And Americans had no problem buying the cheaper leaves that, as we might put it, fell off the ship of international trade. This would, as we know, give rise to war and the revolution and independence of the colonies. Company directors had thus grown weary and with their concern, they were more than happy to turn to government if it meant maintaining a monopoly and establishing firmer control over their factories out in India. This ultimately, again, for the sake of profit. The first measure was to establish a regulating act, which came into place in 1773, and which joined with the Tea Act of the same year. This gave the British government some control over the EIC, but it was not really enough. And so enter Pitt in 1783. One of his first things, this is by 1784, the first things that Pitt did was introduce what would become known as the Pitt India Act of the East India Act, or the East India Act of 1784. It's a move that set control over the East India Company in the hands of a board of directors. We here thus see the path by which what was once a joint stock effort expanded. It expanded, became overburdened by its success even, and then by government measure fell back into the fold, finding refuge in regulation. Let's just say that state building and imperial expansion seldom take direct paths. And again, one might pause again to consider maybe say the United Fruit Company and American national interests in the 1950s throughout, you know, the middle of the 20th century. But we'll get there next week. In the aftermath of Pitt's India Act, 
a permanent board of six that included figures such as the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Secretary of State were ordered to form as commissioners for the affairs of India. From this point forward, then, the British government, and in particular privy councillors to the crown, would in essence control what took place in India. Over the course of the next hundred years, regional control would see harsh systems of taxation imposed throughout the subcontinent, along with deepening cultural ties and resource exploitation. Once loyal mercenaries, Sepoys, increasingly sought and for a limited time seemed to have achieved in certain capacities, uh, a winding back of the clock of the reestablishment of Mughal rule as opposed to rule by the foreign remnants of the East India Company by commissioners. British rule was as brutal as it was culturally domineering, with attempts to reform education and break traditional social norms. Societal norms were canned in many cases uh, to the benefit of British rule or attempted to be canned. Again, we find the importance then of uh, Muslim classification of leadership, of the fact that Muslim Mughal rule was preferred because it granted even limited protection to Hindus. Mughal taxation was thus vastly preferred to the harsher British versions even. And the British, it should be noted, exacted a crushing defeat on Sepoy leadership an attempt to prevent any future uprisings that might take place. Stories of captives tied to artillery blasted to pieces as a cruel victory and execution helped to break regional resistance and indeed stoke yet more anger. That these would really put into place modes of violent resistance that would dominate, if not be effective, to the beginning of the next century and to the point where Gandhi introduced more peaceful means through Satyagraha. This system of control would remain in place for nearly half a century, until Sepoy Lloyd led rebellion in 1857. This rebellion prompted a swift response. Commissioner took control, passed directly to the crown, which meant that Queen Victoria, by 1877, was now titled Empress of India. So rebellion led to the response in which this commissioner control became simply royal control. The empress would then appoint a Raj and crown, would, crown rule would persist. This is, I readily admit, an appallingly abbreviated version of events. But it is here that I would like to point out that the actions of Sepoys in India of resistance served as an inspiration for others. And who did suppose with this act of resistance inspire most clearly? The Irish. Ireland had itself, and as we might recall from earlier podcast lectures, been subject to harsh English and later British rule. The example of resistance made by uh, Sipoys was uh, something of an inspiration to those in Ireland who sought freedom from dominion, a dominion that went back to Elizabethan planters and a dominion that was made severe under Cromwell's campaigns in the early 1650s. Remarkably, it became the case that the British Under Secretary for Ireland, Thomas Larkham, was for a time preoccupied with suppressing the singing of sepoy ballads in Ireland, songs of resistance made in India and appropriated as relevant to the Irish situation. 
It was thus the case that in Ireland, of all places, extant divisions between Protestants and Catholics and divisive concerns over rule by the English gave way to applications of sepoyism as a pejorative title applied to resistant Irish Catholics by Irish Protestants. We might readily trace more strands of the global web at the center of which sits the archipelago of Britain itself. But this is an interesting case in which we see resistance in India inspiring resistance across the Irish Channel. Ireland had, perhaps as many of you know, suffered from devastating famines not long before. It was at most unlikely of crops, the potato, first brought and grown on an estate in Ireland by none other than Walter Raleigh, that would give rise to the famines that would see a mass migration of the Irish to mostly former British colonies, but also, as it turns out, to the nearby metropole. The potato had become such a successful crop in Ireland that it created a monoculture subject to a fungus that turned the country on its head between 1845 and 1849. Phytophthora infestans starved more than a million and drove more than a million and a half away from Irish shores. This is potato blight. Laissez-faire assumptions, meanwhile, led the British government to do little, or at least to do too little too late. Corn supplies were granted to Ireland at first, and these helped, but it ended up that many of the Irish were left to flee or perish. As the Times paper reported, the matter made it so that proprietors might easily suck the very lifeblood of that wretched race, the Irish. We have then the elements of resistance in India that would be the basis for nationalist resistance in Ireland, an effort of popular revolt that was a premonition, in a way, for later Irish organization, and even on to the point of the creation of the Irish Republican Army. But let us turn back to where we began in terms of empire with the East India Company. Company efforts extended well beyond the Indian subcontinent, where war led to revolt and crown rule. Europeans had for centuries worked diligently to trade for goods procured in China, primarily in terms of silks and porcelain at first, as both were vastly superior to what was available in Europe. And increasingly, as we've discussed over and over, tea became a valuable import, even if it was leading to surplus in the 1760s and 1780s. And having won control over Bengal, the East India Company increased its growth of poppies. And why? But for the production of opium. Opium was made from a sticky residue of milk that came out of poppies, a substance known as latex. Uh, finished opium was then bricked and put in chests in Bengal and transported and sold where but to China. And once it reached China, it would enter into large-scale underground distribution networks where it would be transported, sold, and consumed. Whereas opium had long been in use as a medicine, it had in the 18th century become a highly sought-after drug to be smoked as a depressant. It contains in it codeine, and other things. Edicts by king emperors 
who considered the drug both dangerous and in some instances even poisonous, made opium illegal on several occasions. But the British continued to meet growing demand for the drug by transporting opium to the free trade port in Canton. Britain had and continued to maintain that it was better to deliver products in place of silver. So the ghost of Mun keeps speaking to us. In fact, opium became so problematic that in 1839, the Chinese government, under the authority of a newly appointed minister, sent an official letter request on to the British government, asking that they cease and desist with distribution finally. The confiscation of an opium shipment that same year led some in Britain to call outright for war with the king. Debate persisted. But belligerence ultimately won out, and subsequently British ships reached the waters off Canton in June 1840. And it was at this point that they bombarded ports. The British, by this point, were using new, powerful, steam-powered vessels. The Industrial Revolution, as you might recall, was already advancing naval and military technology. Shallow drafts of the steamships allowed the British to reach Canton, a feat assumed to be impossible prior to this. The resulting and resounding British victory led to a deeply lopsided treaty with the Chinese, the Treaty of Nanking, and this imposed upon China terribly harsh penalties. It demanded huge sums of silver in reparations, along with the establishment of five permanent trading ports for the British, the most famous of which were at Shanghai and Canton. These came with the assumption of a special proprietary relationship for the British. And beyond this, China was forced to cede the entire island of Hong Kong to the British, a move that would, of course, remain in place until 1997. The sum of the first war was, in essence, not just a favorable positioning of Britain, but the utter humiliation of the king. This would be remembered in China as the first of several unequal treaties. Opium thus continued to pour into China, with company imports doubling in the next 20 years, so 20 years between 1840 and 1860. And tensions remained in place, so that by the 1850s, imperialist efforts were on the rise not only in Europe, but also in the United States. Britain, however, by 1856 was eager to use this status that they had won by the Treaty of Nanking, this special relationship. And they sought thus to open up yet more trading ports in China. But more than this, they wanted to increase and legalize opium and find new inroads for what was known as coolie trade, a movement of indentured laborers who could be picked up in India and brought to China or elsewhere. The coolie trade was in many ways an answer to abolition. This offered laborers who agreed to work incredibly difficult situations for low wages, but they entered into this contractual state of obligation. It was, by all outward measures, a new form of slavery. If the Chinese appetite for opium was insatiable, so too was the British desire to increase trade and profit. Britain's engagement with China, which again saw them utilize their superior ships, opened the door to other national interventions. Soon the French joined the British, 
And soon thereafter, Americans and Russians sought to do the same. In a culminating moment, a combined British and French force of 6,000, not many, captured the massive city of Canton, which was at the time home to a million. Suffice it to say here that the war, this being the second opium war, ended with the British, French, and Russians establishing permanent diplomatic posts in Beijing. More than this, it opened the door for the first time in many years for Europeans and Americans to openly proselytize in China. They had won finally after much resistance, after decades, centuries of resistance, the ability to press Christianity in China. More silver was demanded, but more than money, the British and their Western allies had signaled a defeat, an important defeat of a powerful Chinese empire, a moment that would mark a precipitous decline and eventual collapse. And what then of the East India Company in all of this? The 1870s would see the end of the company, but this did not come without significant transfer of power, and indeed without the making in many ways of the foundations of empire. It would be East India Company armies that would become the armies of the British Raj, And as for China, the East India Company's efforts would establish more than the precious Earl Grey tea that we know today. Indeed, it was in many ways the profits sought by shareholders and company leaders that would open the door to the end of China's last great empire. It would be the tea transported that would make for revolution in the colonies and thus the creation of America. It would, in the end, be that once small joint stock company the one that competed to get footholds with trade factories on the Indian subcontinent that would shape much of the British Empire and the coming global order of imperialism. This would be an imperialism that would see Britain lay claim to nearly a fifth of the land on earth and a quarter of its people. Such claims were now to reach the fruition in just 50 short years. We'll be there next. <laughs>